0: Deadhead Space. You can find us on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, and all other major platforms. I am your host, Patrick R. McDonough, joined always by my co-host Brennan Lafaro. And today we're talking with Josh Mallerman. Hi, Josh.
1: Hi, guys.
0: Now, uh, and how's sorry, Brennan? How's it going, Brennan?
2: I'm I'm good. Thank you for remembering to ask.
0: (laughs) How many books can you stack on your head at one time?
1: Are you? Is this question coming out of nowhere, or did you talk to Michael Wilson? <laughs> or did you listen? Oh, did you listen to that? Was that that podcast already run? Because this is a total coincidence that you were asking me this, and Michael Wilson asked me this. Um, I'm gonna pretend for a moment that it is a coincidence, because this, this is gonna make me eventually do it. And I think the answer's gotta be 20, right? You gotta be able. You gotta be able to stack like 20. I mean, as long as like the base one, like maybe one of those big like picture horror, like from the horror movies like you know it's like this, this this big and thin if that if a good base like that come on you can get like 20 up there Freddie, why I think I think you, why don't think you, jump when in? you uh,
2: initially answered I think it was 10 um when when you uh when you talked with this is horror your confidence has built over the last few weeks I love that It's it's like telling how you caught a fish
1: <laughs> cuz i've really thought about it that the wider the base you could even stack them next to each other <laughs> now <laughs> Brett, I wasn't
0: going to ask that as the first question, but Brett, because like I, I asked that to Michael David Wilson. This is before I even knew that, before you and I talked about you coming on the show. I just asked it because that was the first time I was a patron with the show and I could like ask questions and I said, fuck it. I'm going to ask three weird questions and it's Josh, so I don't know what direction he's going to take it in. And Brennan thought it would be funny if I started off the episode by saying that. So that's why that's why I asked
1: that. Awesome. Uh,
2: but I also think it's funny that you you know, were given that privilege and you your first thought was to immediately start abusing that privilege.
1: <laughs> now we know. Now we know that about you.
0: <laughs> we'll learn more about Brennan as we go along. So the real base question is what got you into horror?
1: Oh, for real? Yes. Um. It's kind of an awesome story, actually, because I was outside playing basketball with my cousins and my brothers, right, at my cousin's house. This was, i who knows how old I was, like nine, right, something like that, ten. And I, I don't know why to this day, I don't know why, but my uncle came outside. At some point, we must have wound down playing or whatever, and he was like, hey, Josh, I want to show you something. I, I think that you'll like this. And... I went into the living room with him and he put on Twilight Zone the movie. And it was the first time I ever saw. Yeah, I would say it was the, maybe, maybe I saw one before, you know, that I just don't really remember or something. But it was the, I I number and I count it as the first horror movie I ever saw. And, And if you really think about that movie, do you guys know that movie? Twilight Zone the movie? My uh, godfather, who
0: is an indie uh,
1: actor in Massachusetts, the
0: Massachusetts area, got me into it. And I loved it. I just remember that the guy's screaming. He's on the wing of the plane. And I'm like, that's fucking crazy.
1: Think about this, though, because it's an anthology horror movie. Yeah. There are four segments. There's also the wraparound, which is the scariest segment, which is Dan Aykroyd. And you want to see something scary, all that. But the four segments sort of almost encapsulate like. All like the wide the range of horror. The first one is all social commentary with Vic Morrow being the most racist lunatic in the world in the bar. And when he exits the bar, he's that he's suddenly a Jew in Nazi Germany. And then when he gets killed there, he wakes up uh, about to be he's a black man in the south about to get um, to be hung. And then like so he experiences the minority experience. That's that's the first segment. The second one is Spielberg doing like the heartstring horror Kick the can with Scatman Crothers, whatever. So already the 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 variety is crazy. And 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 when you're a kid, you think the Spielberg one's really cheesy, but the older you get, the more you're like, no, this one's great too. The third one is like the crown jewel, which is um, it's a good life. Joe Dante. It's the one where the kid could imagine anything. So he removed his sister's mouth. He makes Uncle Walt pull that rabbit out of the hat. He sends his other sister into a cartoon. He pretty much lives. He's a god that lives in like a cartoon, you know, whatever he wants. So that was like, now you got the social commentary, heartstrings, the elasticity, anything goes, the imagination. And the fourth segment is the creature feature, which is the monster on the airplane. And so for a first movie, a first experience with horror, it was almost like I had been injected with an entire history an entire, like, understanding and, like, the entire scope on, like, right away.
0: That Yeah, that, that's a great way to put it. And that uh, scene where the sister's mouth isn't there anymore, I remember
1: that making me freaked out as a kid. <laughs> God, no kidding, right? I was, like, 10 years old and just playing basketball with my brothers, and all of a sudden I'm sitting here watching this, and I'm just – I can still see the room. I can still see the whole setup and me just thinking, like, this is this is unbelievable, you know? And that was it. I was hooked. And there was – in. I think I'm older than you guys. And there was like this thing called Saturday shockers where it was like every Saturday on one of the six stations that existed. Then they would play horror movies. So then I started watching those and blah, blah, blah. But that the uncle opening that door was huge. Did uh he have a, a
0: fascination with horror or is it just a movie he liked?
1: You know, I don't know. It was it something I know that he was a huge Doors fan because when I got older, we talked about that. And I like the Doors. Um. I think that he maybe was a big Stephen King fan. You know, this was probably 84 that I'm talking. I would have been like nine or something. And so I think that that's, yeah, I think he was, but not like us, not like us guys. You know, he doesn't know like we do, but, but I think that I, what, who knows what was said outside? Maybe I said, I want to write short stories or something. Who knows? Right. (laughs) He was like, you got to see this sat me down. Not my brother's. And and he was right. I did have to see that. And I still I, – I almost never even want to ask him because I, we're not like very close with them these days. Not not whatever, but we're just not. They live far away. And I, I saw one time I would like to ask him like, why what was that? why What did you see in me that you saw like a young horror fan? I think
0: that would be important for you to know just as a, a person because that's what – dude, that's what your life is. That's what you can – your success, how you are known throughout the world –
1: literally, is through yeah. horror. What if he was like, um, dude, it was your uh, Cannibal Holocaust t-shirt? <laughs>
2: <laughs> That'll do it. That'll do it every time on a nine-year-old. <laughs> Josh, that's such a cool answer because I love, um, you know, when we ask that question of a guest, um, usually the follow-up is, okay, so tell us, you know, how that innate love of horror led to you kind of becoming a creative, but, it kind of sounds like it almost went the other direction. You said, you know, maybe one thing is, you know, he saw that, you know, want to write stories and uh, figured this is the direction it might head. So has that always been something that you've been interested in?
1: The In writing or the genre itself? Uh, in, in telling stories in general. Yeah. Sorry. Yes. A hundred. yes, so it must be born from there, right? This meeting with him, because... You know, as a kid, I mean, I remember, um, reading the first book that I read from beginning to end, and I did it in front of my family. I remember that being a, like, something that I'm still bizarrely proud of now. Like, the first book I ever read, like a chapter book, whatever it was. And then, um, there was a thing called Pine Tree Books where I grew up, where it was a contest for which, um, student in, like, the district could read the most books. And I, you know, I used to, like, ah, oh, like, roll through them, like, Vinicula, the salary stocks at midnight, although the holiday in all that, like just go, go, go. And I always lost to these two or three girls every time. But, and I still feel like that way when I see stuff online, I'm like, I've read 50 books. And then Sadie Harmon's like, I've read a hundred. And I'm like, I've been dealing with this since I was like, like nine. But anyway, so, so, so I, early on it was like, read, read, read. And then that led to drawing, um, comics, that were not even stories necessarily, but trying to. And then that bled into a very sort of embarrassing emo poetry phase, which a lot of, I think a lot of horror writers kind of go through that one, like, you know what? I'm going to be dark. I, you know, and the way I'm going to be dark is to bare my soul. You know, I'm going to just, <laughs> turn out I'm in right now. And then all of a sudden, <laughs> and stack of poems that are like, it's dark out and it's dark in, you know? And I actually kind of like that line right now. That's a good way to start a story. But then, and then that led to short stories that were like so obviously trying to have twists in them and eventually to novels. So yes, the answer to that is yes, is that it's always been there in some form or another.
2: That's awesome. Couple takeaways from that. First of all, I love your emo poet meets Quint from Jaws uh, impression. (laughs) Um, you're, no, I'll probably get this wrong, but I think you said it was was it the Pine Trees Book Club? Yeah. Is that right? Yeah. It just as soon as you started explaining that, all I could think of was, you know, my my version of that was uh the the Book It program to earn your very own personal pan pizza from uh from Pizza Hut. Um, and the 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 amount of reading I did, I wish I could say it was because I had that love, but it was really just because I wanted pizza
1: god that sounds good right now what what if with every like 10 books we got like a personal pan pizza yeah that might
2: push me to that hundred
1: yeah (laughs) seriously
0: that's how i feel about brennan and me like i me and him we've gotten to the point our friendship where we beta read each other's uh things we beta read together other people's works or we just read stories together and um I'm like, oh, hey, cool. I'm I'm at like page 50. He goes, I'm three books in. Uh, so I've already
1: read that a week ago. Though, you know, because it goes like, it's weird. It's like it's as there's an ebb and flow to it where the first six months of this year, I was reading like six, seven a month. And then I just finished reading the first one of this month. But I am writing a book right now. But I also wrote two other books earlier this year. So I don't. It, there does seem to be like an ebb and flow to it where like suddenly you're just not reading as fast and it's not always the fault of the book you're reading like maybe you had went on a real bender right and you read like three in a week or something right and then and then so then you know the next one you pick up it might suffer a little because you're a little strained or whatever so it took me like 17 days to finish uh to finish one book all of a sudden
2: <laughs> i always wonder that you know if if how much the time in my life I'm coming across a book impacts my enjoyment of it. I wonder if there are books that I absolutely uh, didn't, you know, they didn't connect with me that had I read them a few months before or a few months later, they might, or even on the flip side of that, a book I absolutely loved, something I might give five stars to that just really hit me at the right point. And maybe I didn't love it as much as I, I, I think I did.
1: Yeah, I, I know exactly what you mean. And that's sometimes the fear I have of rereading, a lot of people will be like, "What? What? Are, you know, how many books have you reread in your life? You know, which ones do you regularly?" I think I've only reread two books in my life. I read The Shining twice, uh, once because I was a kid, and then once somewhat recently. And then I, I read a book by Faulkner, Absalom, Absalom. I read twice. The first time when I was living in New York, and I was like, "Wow, this guy is a writer." And later on, for the same reason. So I, I'm almost apprehensive to go to go back. Like, let it just be this magical moment. Let it, let it be what it was. Maybe if I would do the opposite though, maybe for one that I, that didn't work, I might try one of those again or something. But it seems legendary for me because, um, the ones that don't work. Because if I've read, you know, the last 300 books, honestly, guys, I probably didn't like like three of them. Like maybe three or four. Where I turn to Allison and I'm like, ah, oh, this one. Like, it's like one out of a hundred for me where I'm just like, nah. To me, like, horror novels, the worst horror novel is better than most scary movies that I see. That's fair. I can
2: absolutely get on board with that. And, you know, that whole idea of, you know, I, I, Patrick mentioned that, you know, we are both fledgling writers, uh, me more so than him. But at the same time, um, I kind of consider myself more of a reader slash reviewer. And there's almost like this pressure to, criticize i suppose um but it's 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 so damn hard because you know if i do pick up 10 books there is every freaking chance that i love nine of them and that 10th
1: one's still pretty good (laughs) yeah i know and then so the thing that the point that i got to and this is where like i'll I'll post something every now and then where i'm like i read 40 books five stars each fuck it 200 stars all around and you know (laughs) to a lot of reviewers that means okay well i can't take his reviews seriously but to me, it's like what happened was I got to the point where I was able – where I am able to locate the impetus, the nugget, the, the, the spark, the reason the author wrote this book. I'm able to find it. I can almost – like if I'm reading a book, I can almost – oh, that, that's it right there. And I and I, in, in almost every case, and I suppose I could just ask online, but I wish that person was sitting next to me at the bar or something and I could say to them, did you start with this right here? Because like I can see this moment right here. Being like, oh man, I have an idea for a book and you start, it's about a guy who's this, this, and I can see it all blossom from there. And the second that I like locate the reason, the inspiration, um, for writing a novel, I don't, I just enjoy it from there because then I feel like I'm literally just experiencing someone that was inspired enough to tell this story. And like that's, you know, it's a, it's meta in a way, right? Because you're not, um, reviewing the book. You're reviewing the fact that the book was written. And sometimes to me, the most interesting character, or almost always, the most interesting character with every book I read is the author. Like, why did, as if, I can imagine with every book I read, there's a piece of plexiglass, or it's written on plexiglass, and behind it, like Gemma Files is sitting here. But behind the plexiglass that I'm reading, you know? Stephen Graham Jones is behind the plexiglass. <laughs> and I'm, and I'm thinking, oh, that's a good decision. And I look up at him, no, that's a good decision. Yeah, that was ooh, that, that's a scary beat. And I look up at her, mm, that was a good, you know. And it, it almost feels like I'm I'm getting to know through through their judgments, through their decisions, um, not necessarily through vocabulary or language. It's not always that for me. It's more like rhythm, pacing, judgment, and especially the scares. Did you highlight it too much? Did you slip it in there? Where did it come from? And that tells me like a lot about them. So a lot of the times. It's not that I'm reviewing the author, but I am, it's more like I'm just, I don't know, I'm like glad they wrote it. And so for me, that's five stars. Yeah, quick, away from
2: quick aside, did you get a chance to read, uh, Night of the Mannequins by Stephen Graham Jones?
1: No, he sent it to me about a month before it just came out together, Mallory and that and that Nightworms, right? And, um, I, uh, I haven't yet, but I should. I have it It's sitting right here. He, he, um, Emailed it to me a couple months before it came out and I I just didn't yet.
2: It just reminded me, first of all, because you mentioned him, but that definitely seems like one that would be fun to dissect. I think that would be right up your alley. Now, do you find that's ever, um, your kind of methodology of looking at it? Is that ever a problem? Like you can't separate, um, or, or it becomes distracting thinking too much about how it was written and not immersing yourself enough in the story or is it just that's the way you read?
1: I think that I can, I think it's just the way I read. Like, I, I think that I, like, both things happen concurrently. I'm reading, um, a great one is Ghoul by Brian Keane. That's, a, that's a great example because that book has some fat shit elements in it. Like that one kid's mom. <laughs> and, and I'm fully inside the story in the graveyard and the mom and the everything going on. And I'm also thinking, like, Brian wrote this. Brian made, decided, like, this was, some of that stuff. Like he decided this is in my book. I'm going for it. I'm doing it. And I can see it happens concurrently. It's not just some like clinical analysis of an author. It's I'm totally invested, but I'm also like, I don't wanna say in awe because that, that sounds almost like I'm, I'm, I'm bullshitting or something. It's more like I'm watching my eyes on both the story and the author the whole time.
2: That's funny. I just read that one for the first time a few months ago. And um I, I kind of like the way you put that you are like you you could be um in the middle of it and just be like holy shit he's going there that he went there. <laughs>
1: yeah. <laughs> That's completely accurate. i had to like reread some of that moms stuff I'm like wait a minute I am I getting wow yeah this is really happening okay. All right Brian. <laughs> <laughs> I
0: got that uh, I don't know if you can see my power behind me it's on the very top and
1: oh, yeah
0: and, and Hollower by Mary San Giovanni's on there too.
2: Awesome.
0: Um, so I would like to just pull back real quick because I wanted to say one thing. Michael David Wilson and your relationship's funny. Also, it's like you, him, Max uh, Booth, and I forget the other guys, but it seems like it's kind of like a. I don't know how else to word this. For lack of a better phrase, a clubhouse. Not a boys' club, but just like a club for fun writers. Is there. How do you feel about it? Cause I know that there's a few more of you. Is it, is it as fun as, cause it sounds like you're having a blast with that.
1: Well, a lot of that. Well, I mean, I, you can almost argue that Michael David Wilson is the, is the hub of that whole thing, but eventually it became, so my manager's name is Ryan Lewis and Ryan man. what? And his whole story is amazing. And me meeting him, that's all just like truly amazing, wonderful stuff. And at some point he was like, um, after Bird Box, the movie, he was like, Let, let's maybe start thinking about us as producers on everything from now on, not just shopping your books. So once we did that and once we had Unberry Carol, Inspection, Black Mad Wheel um, uh, and a couple of short stories like Option, A House at the Bottom of a Lake, Option, then we were like, OK, wow, we are able to do this. You and I as producers, now let's do this with other people's books. This is this is all Ryan's ideas. Or his he's the engine behind that side of things. And oh. and I'm like, okay, and that led to Max and Michael and Lindsay Barlow and Jonathan Jans and and like a, a number of people that are kind of like we're all like Ryan's weird kids now. <laughs> Like, like, like each one of us in our own way <laughs> is like a total weirdo. And so and Ryan is a very level headed, intelligent. I don't want to say conservative because that's not the right word. Just just he's a level headed, super smart, steady dude. And he's surrounded, you know, he, he has amassed a stable of lunatic horror authors. So I think that that has enhanced the um, the club atmosphere to it.
0: Is he around your age? Because I, I can never tell the way you guys talk about him.
1: Yeah. No, I'm right. He sounds like he could be like this genius child or a <laughs> really, like grizzled, brilliant veteran. <laughs> and I, like laced him up for one more round. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I used to manage Coons in the old days. I'm going to come out for one more, Mallory.
0: He goes back to Quince. I love it. So – there's one more point I want to make because I do have something to thank you and Michael for, which is mentioning Glenn Parker um, from Does the Dog Die podcast because you mentioned me and him together. And then I thought, why haven't I talked to Glenn yet? Long story short, me and Brennan are scheduling him to come on our show next month awesome. be- because of you guys. So awesome. thanks for that. Yeah. Yeah um brennan do you have a question that you want to jump into because i know that we got probably the next one the same but if you want to lead it, by all means
2: uh real quick you know you you mentioned that you um kind of getting hooked up with ryan lewis that was an interesting story tell us a little bit about that how okay. that came to be okay
1: okay cool i love actually telling this story i'm glad thanks for asking um so whew, so i had i play in a band and um i've been trying to write forever i we left off at the emos emo poems leading to short stories this led to failing at writing a novel for 10 years and all i mean by failing is not finishing one i don't care if one's bad but finishing one it means it's total success i don't give a shit how bad it is but for 10 years i was unable to do that i didn't know how to do it i made it 300 pages in one which is in this crate over there and i All I had to do was put the end on it, for crying out loud. I could have rushed the ending and been done with a book, but I just didn't know how. Age 29, I had a breakthrough. I finished one. That is now 33 books. It's been like two, three a year, something like that. So this was a major moment. And when er, when I was about, I'm just trying to think, about eight or nine books deep, I had been posting every time I finished one, which was every like four to six months online, a friend of mine from high school called me, his name's Dave Simmer, he calls me up and he's like, listen, you sound like you're writing a book a month right now, I don't know what's going on, but I know a lawyer who represents authors and you want me to send him one of your books. And I was, uh, this was in the middle of being as broke as someone could be, I think the most I made was 10 grand in a 12 year stretch. Um I was wasted all the time, gloriously, with amazing people, like intentionally, wonderfully wasted all the time. Um, we had a clubhouse bar and with the band and everything, it was just incredible. And I didn't know which book to give this guy. I already had Bird Box, I already had Carol, I already had Goblin, <clears throat> and I insanely foolishly thought that a book of novellas, Goblin, would be in, would be a better option because if they don't like the first one, maybe they'll like the second one. So, I, so I sent that. <laughs> And he I mean you can see like me like legitimately like, hmm, that's the right strategy. Yep. Or oh. <laughs> maybe number five. So then so then they he sends that to the lawyer, and I'm stoned out of my mind one night at this house I'm barely living at in Berkeley, Michigan. And it's his lawyer, and he was like, Hi, my name's Wayne Alexander, and I would love to represent you. I read Goblin and I think it's great, and I want to see what else you have. I was like, Wait, what's going on? You know, I'm in the band. I'm broke. A million books piling up. Had hadn't shopped them to anyone. Not one agent. Nothing yet. Wayne then says to me, I have what I think is a perfect manager for you. And he's your age. And he's and he's just, you know, starting out in certain ways. And he's super smart and this and that. He sent Ryan Goblin. Goblin or Ryan Goblin calls me. Hello.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Is that his nickname for now on? Ryan? Ryan Goblin Lewis.
1: Um, God, Ryan Goblin Lewis. I'll, like throw the final inning in baseball. So, so Ryan called me like a month later and he was like, hey, I, I would love to manage you and at this point I'm like, what's going on? Call me a lawyer manager. there's like what is there to manage? Like I'm literally like returning cans every day. Th- this being broke continues for years, but with Ryan now, as a manager, because it's not like you get a manager and then the next day you have a book deal, right? So with Ryan, I rewrote I'm Mary Carroll, um, and we were all set to shop it, and I don't know what bug got in my head or what, but I was like, I think that, I think that it's dangerous to start with this one because it's a Western. And I, nobody had given me that advice, I just I sensed that it could be a little dangerous to start with a Western. And I was like, I think we should start with this one bird box instead. It feels more like a debut, a more how do you do? It's a very small, very contained horror story. And he's like, all right, send me that one. So I sent it. He's like, great. I rewrote that for a while. He then shopped that to Kristen Nelson, the agent. She calls me. She wants to, she wants to shop it to publishing houses. And at this point, Ryan says to me, the minute this gets picked up, I am going to sell the film rights to this book. And I had no reason to like. He had no uh, uh, track record of this. None. He, I was his only novelist. He had sold, I think, some screenplays and had things optioned for clients or other people. But there was no real reason for me to totally. I was just like. And he's not like a mover shaker. It's not like he's like, dude, I'm gonna, I'm gonna pull this off, of you, kid. You know, it's not like gold sunglasses and big hair or something. He's like, <laughs> just, just, just level dude. And I was like, okay, all right, yeah, yeah, I believe you, you know? And um, Bird Box, Kristen sold Bird Box to HarperCollins. This was, as you can imagine, an absolutely, like, mind-blowing moment for me. I didn't even know what was going on at this point. And then, like, five months later, Ryan sold Bird Box to Universal Studios. And at that point, I was like, holy shit, man. I, like, this guy, we have been together for, like, three years by then, working together. And I was like... He fucking did it. He's been <laughs> for years and he freaking did it. And it was this incredible moment for both of us. First time he did it, and also like we just kind of had blind faith in each other from the start. Um, he just saw a pile of rough drafts that he thought were really messy and really good for various reasons. And I saw a guy that didn't have any novelists but had like this very focused, um, he's always concerned about the career arc over, uh, Flash in the Pan. He's always advising me not to follow trends, that he's always talking about how they're moving targets. You don't want to write a book for this audience because by the time it comes out, especially nowadays, by the time it comes out that like two years ago, it feels like like a thousand years ago now. So don't aim for these things. Just, you know, keep to the spirit of things. And we're constantly I talked to him today twice. And so to me, Ryan, you know, there's the friend that called from high school. He, he started the whole thing for me. But Ryan Lewis is, is like, the one who, like, has, like, the steady um, guiding hand, like, through this, like, whole, this whole really freaking fantastic experience.
0: You listen to your gut every time and it paid off. And I think that's one thing that people should listen or take away from this episode, if anything, Uh, or to stick out. For me, it's listen to your gut because in my experience, too, it's usually
1: right. It's like you can sense it, right? There's like yeah. just like when you're writing a book. Now let's now let's go micro. So you're writing a book, and like at first you're like, I don't know how long this will be, but then like around forty thousand words or something, you're like, oh actually, no, I can tell this is probably gonna go around 80, 85. How? Like what? What do you mean? Like I don't know exactly where it's ending, but you can start to sense the arc. You can start to sense the situation you're in, the story you're in, and then, And again, this is this is interesting because this is in step with what we were talking about before. It's not just the story inside the book. It's the story of the author, too. And if you pay attention, you can, you can sense where the, that character, you, is in that arc as well. And I think that, that's something that Ryan and I are very aware of. And we, we call it um, – we, we always use the word momentum. And the whole idea is if you stay in motion. You may not end up where you um, originally dreamed or planned or hoped to be. But you're going to fucking end up somewhere. And so stay in motion and let's like, is that, does this, this item that we're talking about, this, uh, does this have momentum to it? Yes. Let's go. Um, does, you know, writing this next novel for no reason, but is there a moment? Is there a spirit? Let's go. And it's always, we always, always side with momentum. Whether it's a friend of mine who, um, uh, made a short movie of one of my stories for like free, obviously, you know, and then to Netflix, like a giant holy cow thing with bird box. To me, they're both the same. Like, they're both moving forward. Let's go. And Ryan.
0: It's a a great way to look at it. Along the lines of arcs, like, uh, and momentum. Um, Just today, uh, earlier today, I was talking to Brennan, and the book I'm working on is one that has been in my head for 13 years, and I'm bleeding on the page. And I knew the arc. I wrote it out. Laurel gave me some, Laurel Hightower gave me some great advice on outlining, and that was helpful. And I'm like, okay, I know the arc, I know the motives, blah blah blah. And then I get to thirty thousand, I'm like, oh, this is Brennan. This is because I, again, I tell him like all the updates, and I say, this is weird, I didn't see this coming. Now I hit forty six thousand words today, and I'm like, huh, this idea came. This is the arc. This is part of the core arc, but it's like, this is a weird. I like this. I like this a lot, and I love like I feel like the more I listen to your interviews. The more, um, and I'm not, I'm not just bullshitting you. Like, I kind of get the Josh Malaman spirit animal thing going on because of your love for it. It doesn't seem to fade away ever. And it's fantastic. It's, it's catchy. And, um, real quick story. Um, I had this uncle that departed a few years ago. Great guy. He, he would, Do something that you literally are the only person I've ever talked to online or in face-to-face situations where you do what he does. It's the same spirit and tone where he would come up to you no matter who you were. He would talk to you. He would listen, but he would actually listen. I'm not saying other friends don't listen. It's the way he does it. He was – 110% 110% like, I'm pumped for you. I don't care what you're talking about. I love it. You're the only person I've met, and I love it. And I think that's also why I'm like, I want to hear what you have to say. And you do that with your stories, the way you talk about them. I don't know, man. This is my long-winded way of saying I like what you got to do.
1: All right. Thank you. Uh, thank you very much, man. I I think um, – God, this is an odd story to tell, but I'm just going to tell it. Did I, I don't know if I told this on – this is where, if I did, stop me or just, or don't. Um, but, so when the band, I'm in the band, the high strung, and we, um, with my best friend, and we lived in New York for a minute, uh, for four years. Actually saw the Twin Towers fall in person. We were there then. That's where oh. we, in person. So watch that happen in person. All of us. I never heard you say that before. Yeah, that story is. Woo! <laughs> man, but anyway. So, um, at some point, I'm like, you know, in the studio space, it was just a basement that we had a recording gear in. And I remember I'm sitting there in front of this reel-to-reel machine, and I, you know, there's there's uh, drinking every night. There's drugs around everywhere, always. All of us were on them. Um, infinite new friends, old friends. We're totally broke. What's going on? We're starting a band. I'm trying to write books, blah, blah, blah. a whole mayhem broke. I, I'm stressing that because it really felt like that's all we were all the time. And I remember having a moment in the basement alone where I was like, look, whatever we're going to call this writing, art, whatever it is, spirit, the spirit of it. I was like, you need to put this in a safe place in your head that is beyond distraction, that is beyond drinks, beyond drugs, beyond uh, we weren't really dating anyone in those days. But, be, OK, beyond trying to date people, beyond um, uh, the shows on any pressure you might feel if you write one song that you think is really good like don't feel pressure for the next one it's in a safe spot no matter what happens and that bizarre it sounds a little cosmic and it sounds a little um, new agey but that moment where I said look this thing that you adore like we're putting it in not in a stuffy little attic room we're putting it somewhere safe though somewhere nice and safe where nothing can get to it and now fast forward all the way to let's say Mallory, right? Where Bird Box the movie was a big deal, and so Bird Box the book became a bestseller. And you can imagine sitting down to write a sequel, one might experience like enormous pressure, right? Um, and th- just at, just like everything was, just like everything, the books have been safe from arguing with a girlfriend, um, uh, safe from. You know, uh, a band made like leading the band safe from um, total freaking broke poverty, safe from drugs, drinking, all these things. It was also it's also safe from pressure. I didn't know this before because I've never had something like this before me, like Mallory. And I sat down to write and I was like, oh, no, this is straight, this is man. Like, I'm not even remotely worried. Let's roll. Let's just go. I wasn't like, oh, no, this better be. uh Oh, shit, man. You know, and all the time I'm like, no, don't use it. You know <laughs> nothing like that at all it was like just sat down and excitedly hung out with Mallory for 300 pages again and now I'm a few books beyond that so I think that, that the spirit of this I think is in a very safe place with me meaning mine my spirit that sounded like I had like a ghost with me the spirit is like, a <laughs> safe place gentlemen
0: you're talking about my uncle's spirit he's that's that that's <laughs> why.
1: <laughs> you guys want to see it. The spirit is in a very safe place. <laughs> Down the hall, you know? Um uh, <laughs> I like that idea. That's a good that's a good story idea. Like, don't worry, it's fine. Everything's fine. Everything just come follow me. Uh yeah, I don't know if I'm you know. Anyway, it's in a very safe place with me. Uh and I at some point I started talking freely about that and haven't jinxed it yet.
2: That's- I I loved how I have loved let's say how you know the approach to Mallory was that there, you know through all interviews and processes and everything I've read and heard you talk about that book there's just never been one instant where you know like you said you it seemed like you felt pressured uh th- there was no bird box blew up so no I have to do this and I <clears throat> excuse me I think that's huge you know because the book definitely reads like that. Like this is not turned out because oh the movie blew up now I have to do this and that's not you. Um, just the way you approach any creative aspect, I, I, you know, even if the studio's banging down your door saying we want another, I can see you yelling at that closed door, being like, no, I'm working on this story about you know a ghost that's trapped safely down the hall. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> This is what I'm on right now. This is what we're doing.
1: (laughs) Yeah. I mean, yeah. Uh, Thank you for saying that. Um, It's yeah. I don't know how to explain it. It, It's almost like, how do you, how do you, how would you explain this? I, I have definitely said this before that there's a way to like maintain a double think about this, where it's okay to think that the book you're working on has to be the greatest fucking thing ever. And at the same time, think it's okay. If it sucks and it's just a book, don't worry about it. Like, and they don't cancel each other out. Both permanently exist. One while you're writing it, like this has to be good, and also it doesn't matter. It has to be good. It doesn't matter. And I think that it's okay. Certain scenarios double think are fine, and that's one. Because a lot of people, you know, I have friends that have brilliant ideas for books that don't do them because they get stuck on a dude. They get stuck on a street name sometimes. I'm like, <laughs> I was trying to like I was thinking maybe I could like allude to James Joyce here and but then I was like maybe I should allude I'm like dude name it Main Street let's roll you know put let's call it Placeholder Street and you we'll worry about this later you know and and I I think that that's anything to get you through that rough draft because once the draft is done then you can fix it but if it's not done man it's just gonna lurk and lurk and lurk and haunt you.
2: Yeah, no, this is such a small detail to get hung up on, but I absolutely agree with that. You know, if I need to name a street or if I need to name a restaurant or something, I feel like nine times out of ten, I just throw an extremely generic name at it. And I I have read – you know, I I like a cute little reference every now and then, but I read a book pretty recently where it was – um, I, I remember I'm feeling like I, the only reason this paragraph exists was so they could put in, uh, you know, cute street names and it's distracting. It almost kind of just pulls you out of the story. Yeah. Um, and as a result, I mean, I feel like I try to not overdo that. Um, yeah. and the, there was definitely a more, uh, my train of thought left the station. There was definitely a more important question I had than do you like naming streets after buddies, <laughs> but, um,
0: <laughs> ask him what got you into horror. I'm <laughs> just
1: joking what if I was just like right you guys would be so you'd be in your own little horror movie if, if you just said that I go well I'll tell you so I was playing basketball with my brother <laughs> and I'm like just totally and then you realize like wait a minute he's like on a loop right now and then you see, you see me come in through his back door right there that back that, that door behind him and like stab him while while he's like listening to me tell the same exact story Have whole, you have you seen Host? I did yeah I thought it was great did you guys like it?
0: Yeah, we talked to um, Haley, Emma, and one of the screenwriters last week and uh, and we, I told them, I'm like, that one part where Carolyn's uh, you know, she's in the background just on loop.
1: That's brilliant.
0: That's what I was thinking about. Like, when's his face gonna smash in
1: the screen? <laughs> yeah, yeah, totally brilliant. That whole sequence, you knew the first time they showed that, that that's when that comes up again it's gonna be totally freaky, you know? 'Cause you're like, you were gonna see her enter again and it's gonna be the screensaver or whatever. <laughs> but um yeah, yeah, there's a lot to love about that one, man, for sure.
0: How cool is that? Like they did something that probably will never happen again in our lifetime a movie shot during a
1: pandemic.
2: Yeah. God, I hope so. <laughs> or I hope not, I guess. <laughs> yeah, no doubt.
1: Hey, you wanna hear a kind of similar story, but not really. Um is <laughs> <laughs> Yes. <laughs> of my band this is such a great story so this is 1998 or 97 even it must be 98 I was 8 then and the drummer of our band he owned a video dubbing house this is a VHS dubbing house in New York City right by Union Square and so this I worked there as a counter guy and Derek owned the place because Derek had worked there the owner died Derek got a loan with with two other girls they ended up buying the place so the reason this place is amazing is that, like, you know, a lot of actors in New York would come in there before they were famous. Right. So they were real. Here's a real like Steve Buscemi, like Femke Jansen, like these people would bring in before anyone knew them, And then Derek would or different guy at first, but now it didn't Derek would have like it was like 30 VCR set up with all the blank tapes and you put in the master tape. They all run record at the same time. Right. And then you when they come, they pick up their videos. They mail them out to uh, whatever it is, companies, studios, whatever. Derek had someone bring in a movie that this is 98 where he didn't know it was a movie where they were like, I just need 30 copies of this. Derek puts it in and it's the fucking Blair Witch Project. So this is before the Internet like storm of it. This is before any way before any idea that this was like uh, fake or, you know. So, talk about the ultimate way to watch the Blair Wish Project. Derek Burke, the high strung, is in the back room of a video dubbing house, because you have to watch the whole thing to make sure that it, it's fine. Yeah. And he just sits there and watches what he believes to be, or pretty much believes to be, like footage that somebody edited together that, of these people's cameras. He walked out of there at the end of that and he was like, listen, there's, somebody brought in a video that, like, you, you really have to see, man. And I was, (laughs) It's like these kids, they're like looking for like like a oh my witch myth, and it was unbelievable. It was unbelievable. I always, whenever like Paranormal Activity, and now host, because I host like, it seemed to have broken another barrier, another like, you know, wall or something. For the internet, for the social media age. Yeah, definitely, and, and the Blair Witch Project like absolutely destroyed a wall for all of us in 98, and he fucking... Nobody saw it in a cooler way than Derek man
0: That I I can't think of one other cool way. Did he think it was real and said, "Holy shit, we gotta get help"?
1: My memory is because think about it, I hadn't heard about it yet. It isn't what it is now, you know, not even close. Well, nobody knew. He seemed like freaked out, like, he's like this is this is freaky, and he's like, "I I think it's just it's like documentary footage that someone brought in." I don't. He's like, and it's really weird. It like tells like a story, and you know, I remember being like, "Oh yeah, whatever." <laughs> Where are we going? Yeah.
2: To- <laughs> I, I, I can imagine, because I mean, um, like, you know, we would think now if we stumbled across something like that just because it's become so commonplace. But like you said, you know, the found footage genre, it's not that it didn't exist, but it definitely wasn't as prevalent before Blair Witch. So it's not necessarily something your mind would jump to. That's crazy.
1: That's awesome. So then I, and this led up to like the, one of the best cinematic experiences of my life. Because then later on, we re- then word started to spread about this thing and the website for it and all this. I went and saw that movie alone, meaning, by myself, there was other people there. Went and saw that alone at midnight at the Angelica, which is like a famous New York theater. And I watched it at midnight, and it was like one of the greatest cinematic experiences of my entire life. I remember calling friends on a payphone after. This was so good. This is like 99 or something, right? Calling like all these friends like, this. Was, it was unbelievable. Oh, my God, that was... It's still one of my favorite movies, and I know, like, a lot of, um, it gets a lot of shit, I don't know, probably, because if you watch it again, it seems, like, kind of repetitive, where they're just kind of yelling at each other for, like, an hour and a half <laughs> time, believe me, dude, and there's, like, no blood in that movie, and at the time, that yeah. was astonishing for a horror movie. There was, like, there was only one little, little bit of blood in, like, a, in like a handkerchief with, like, a tooth or something in it. Yeah. It's a scary movie. And I was,
2: uh... I was 14 when that came out. I was prime Blair Witch in the theater age. And, um, I, I will tell, I haven't watched that movie in probably 15 years, but the ending when it pans to the kid facing the corner is never, ever, ever going to leave the back of my mind. That, yeah. that shot and that whole sequence is etched in my memory forever.
1: Yeah. It's creepy. It's
0: creepy. Paranormal activity, when I watched that when it first came out. It just sent chills. Down. Host did the same thing for me because I got a rare moment where my uh, my mother-in-law had my kid. My wife was at work. I had the house to myself, and I watched it and – watching Host. And I was creeped out, man, with quite a few of those uh, yeah. moments. And with Paranormal Activity, I remember the flower scene where they like wa- – the, you see the footsteps of the person standing oh.
1: next you, to the bed. I saw that movie Stone with a bunch of friends. <laughs> saw it in the theater we knew it was obviously found footage by then right we all knew but
0: yeah mm-hmm.
1: but i was high to my mind in the my friends the whole time i'm like i do i remember i had a hoodie on and then i was like this like 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 sucked up into the hoodie like you know like the whole time that movie fucked me up man and afterwards i said to my friends like oh god that was like and they're like that movie was dumb i'm like what What? Like, nobody none, nobody else got from it what I got from it. They're all like, no, let's go to the bar. And I'm like, uh, what? no, really? You know, <laughs> I slept with the lights on for weeks after that, man. <laughs> the, for that very scene, that the footprint powder scene. And then I had a friend, a girl who was like, you know what? I like to she – goes, she goes, you know what? I think, I think that when it walks in on those footprints, it's like it's so big that it has to, like, duck in the bedroom, the entity. Oh, my <laughs> and, God. Oh, wow. <laughs> like, I was like, <laughs> but I was like, that gives a whole other perspective to that movie. I watched it again recently and it was genius. Absolutely brilliant.
0: Yeah. Um, a great movie to watch, Stone, from my personal experience, is really any Marvel movie, but uh, one of the Avenger movies. I can't remember which one, but it's just fun. Watching all this crazy shit happen. <laughs> I mean, there's no blood,
2: there's no horror, but still, it's a fun time. Sometimes I would horror- imagine in that state that it's they're pretty much all the same.
1: <laughs> well, sometimes horror can be a little dangerous on that kind of thing. Not not like you're gonna walk out of there stabbing people. <laughs> you're like, you're, listen, Reefer Madness, man. If you put on Friday the Thirteenth, you're guaranteed to go to jail. But it's like it's 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 you walk out of there like disturbed because like you're like you're like I watched Doctor Sleep stoned and they were and I walk out of there just feeling like super weird, you know. I love that movie. Now I like, got feeling like oh like super strange you know. <laughs>
2: there's some uh, there's some scenes in there that I think um because I watched it completely straight laced, there's some scenes in there that I don't know that I would want to put myself through in an altered state of mind.
1: <laughs> yeah. Yeah, like horror, like Evil Dead, that shit works. It's fun and there's like a underlying of just pure adrenaline fun in some of those, but. There are some horror movies like I don't want to watch like um uh, well, the exorcism Exorcism of Emily Rose I don't want to be stoned for that you know no way dude
0: um Josh let's jump real quick to one question that I got specifically about a high strung how did the lucky you got your single end up being the theme song for Shameless
1: okay so we had with our first album we had um signed with like a woman who worked for a company where their whole job was to shop um, songs to film and TV for commercials, blah, 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 whatever. And I think we signed with her in, like, 03 or 02. Her name's Mara. Mm-hmm. And all through the years, she she would tell us, like, I'm, I'm going to get you guys, the same thing with Ryan Lewis, man. I'm going to get you guys a placement one day. I'm going to get you a placement. And she loved that particular song. And then I think it must have been, Oh, nine. Oh, like 2006, six years later something like that. We were in a, we were practicing. I think it was maybe 2010. We were practicing and she called um, Derek's phone right after practice. He had just left and she called him up and was like, I got you guys a theme song for, for a show on Showtime. I pitched you guys like a, a while ago and, and they want to do it. And we're like, what? And you know, again, there was like, we, we all quit our jobs in 01. And we hit the road like full time. So we didn't have apartments. We didn't have income. We didn't have. That was it. We lived on the road for about six and a half years. And I started writing novels in that stretch and all that stuff. So to get a phone call at the kind of the tail end of that stretch, saying that like, here's some money coming in. Here's a um, uh, placement where people might actually hear your songs. And we were playing for like 20 people a night. We still do. So the luck you got was like a big Huge moment for us, man. You know, and, and it was that woman, Mira, just like Ryan has done with the books. That's pretty.
0: That's awesome, man. Because that's like I'm. I'm a fan of that show. Uh, have you ever met
1: William H Macy? No, we went to LA to play um, a gig for like that was kind of built like we would be playing for the like the crew and like the um, uh, Warner Brothers, like the Jackson crew and stuff. And it was a really fun time. We were in LA, and I remember. We all got really drunk for the show and everyone it was a super fun night. But um none of the cast were there. So no, I've never met any of them.
0: He'd be he'd be an interesting one uh, to talk to. And you could talk to him about Jurassic Park three, Brennan's favorite Jurassic Park of the, the series.
2: Is that anyone's favorite Jurassic Park <laughs> of the series?
0: <laughs> I thought I'd get that comment from you. Watch Take yeah. Over, sir.
2: So uh Josh, have you, uh, has the High Strong had the same lineup since, uh, I think you said like 97,
1: 98? Well, we officially, we all, that's when we moved to New York. Was Mm -hmm. um, Well, Derek was already there, but me and Mark moved then. But um, it wasn't until 2000 that we officially started when another friend of ours from Michigan, Chad, moved there. So in 2000, so... Me, Derek, and Chad. Derek plays drums. Chad plays bass. We have been there the entire time. Um, we started with two other guys, Mark and Berko. Berko quit after a couple years, and Mark Mark left the band in like 05, 04. It must have been 04. But then in 2016, he came back. And Mark and I have written, oh man, we have, we've written hundreds of songs together. But he just whatever he went his own way for a while. It wasn't like acrimonious or terrible or anything. It was weird because we all lived down the road and and all this. But then when Mark left, yeah, it was 04 because because Mark left, we suddenly had a month open. Um, because we 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 had to like read, like learn songs without him and stuff, right? And we came back to Michigan to this area, and I took that month to try another stab at writing a novel. And that's the first one I ever wrote. So in a weird way, I think that Mark leaving sort of like um, severed like some cord where him and I were songwriting partners and it was kind of like you're on your own now. And then suddenly I finished writing like my first novel like a month later or something. So I I think that maybe him and I both were just growing, whatever. Years later, 12 years later, Mark has rejoined, and somewhere along the line, Steven joined the band in like 2010. So we are now five again. Started as five, went down to three for a long time, five again.
2: I I'm super curious in your songwriting process with collaborative versus solo. What's the difference
1: for you? Well, I kind of equate it to um, I kind of equate it to like what happened with Bird Box, the book and the movie. Now, what why I say this is that it's kind of like I feel like I write the song, but I don't like I'm never in a million years would tell Chad or Derek what to play, you know, or like this. Mark and I talk about harmonies or this, that, of course. But it's not like I'd be like, Derek, you got to do this four on the floor. You know, it's more like I just bring the song and they do what they want And the Bird Box felt the same way. I wrote the song, the book, and then the band, the movie people did whatever they wanted with it. And I, I like that kind of thing. I don't. You know, it's not that we only have so much time, but. I like energy wise, I want to put all my energy into just writing the songs and books. So to spend like all this time, you know, looking over someone's shoulder or telling them you should do it this way or making sure it's right. Oh, just, just go do it. And I hope, and let's just hope it's freaking awesome. So that's the same philosophy with the songs. Having Mark as a songwriting partner is huge though because he's like really good with lyrics, really good. And that's an awesome thing to have because. You know you get stuck, man. You know you get stuck on the lyrics sometimes you have like a sweet melody and chord changes, and then you're like, "Oh my God, all these lyrics are so cheesy or whatever, and he's really good in that way, so having him has been almost like a um like a safety net in a lot of ways in a lot of great ways. He's amazing, oh he writes songs on his own too, and he uh, he's he's fucking amazing
2: I, I think that's so cool the way it um almost kind of lines up with your writing philosophy where you just kind of hit it from that creative approach and it allows you to just write a book and you know then go on to the next book and you know if somebody else can kind of take the reins on marketing on you know principally anyways worrying about the film side it really just allows you to create so i mean where as far as songs go you know you can put in the vocal line you can put in this or that and as long and, and just let everybody else do their thing to, yeah. you know, put the complete product and then you're on to the next. And I think it, I think I read that you have something like 24 albums out. Um, Is that right?
1: Well, <laughs> probably is. But then like, I think there's nine with the high strong Mark and I did two alone while he was out of the band. He like came into town and we recorded twice. I've done a couple of my own. So yeah. It's probably somewhere around there. And I, yeah. So there's like a create with 24 other novels and there's also probably yeah probably close to 20 like albums out there too yeah
0: good lord <laughs> so he's literally prolific at nearly everything he does Wow.
1: Well, yeah <laughs>
0: <laughs> i mean that's kind of the the definition of it speaking of prolifics how would one go about joining that club
1: Well, you know, it's something that's been on my mind a lot. I wrote about it at the end of Mallory in the afterward. Um, It really is something that's been on my mind a lot because I think that there's a long period where I was almost like embarrassed of it, which is a strange thing to say. But you don't know when you start if you're going to be prolific. Nobody sets out like I'm going to write 100 songs a year, you know, or I'm going to write three books a year. You're just like so excited that you're even writing one. Mm -hmm. And See, here's the thing. You don't know you're a prolific. It, it's not book one. might not even book, be book two, but it at least has to at least be book, book two, right? Because then you see the space between two works of art, right? So Wendy was the first book that I wrote. I have it right here for good luck. My brother went and made a paperback. My brother owns like a, owned a print shop. He went and made a paperback when I sent him like the file to read. Hmm. This this is from 2004. I went to his house. Look, Josh Matherman's Wendy. That's like like John Carpenter's Wendy. You know?
0: For audio listeners, it is a paperback. There's nothing written on the spine or cover or back. Yeah. It's pretty neat. It's like a it's like a and
1: notebook. This was the first time I ever saw something of mine like in book form. Mm. It's like 05, early 05, because I sent him. I wrote it in December of 04. So early 05, he came over to my house during winter. Michigan hands me this. He's like, can I make something for you? And I was like, holy shit. And I like held on to this thing for like ever and I still have it here. That's amazing. Until book two, Goblin, that I realized like, oh, so that was only a year between these two. It was, no, no, no. It was six months. Six months. Six months later, I wrote Goblin. So at that point, you start to sense something. And I had already written a lot of songs by then. <clears throat> and then when book three comes six months later, now you're starting to see a pattern. And then, you know, you get 10 books deep. Or now at 33 books deep, it would almost feel like astonishing if a year went by without one. So I don't think you set out to do it. But I think once you set it's like there's, there can be, depending on who you're surrounded by, there can be almost like um, it can be frowned upon. By a sort of, by a more like literary set, which I know a lot of people like that. And where it can be a little bit more like, um, well, if you're writing that much, it's kind of just typing, isn't it? You know? Or like, you can't care that much about each book if you're writing like a year. My God, man. I even had an editor who was telling me that I should take five years to write this one novel. It's like, Fine, five fucking years? I'm dude, <laughs> all novels done in the next five years. And he was like, no, just like, Take your time. You know, it doesn't have to be done like now. And I was like, Tristan, uh, this is not the right editor for me. And not not in a pissy way. In a like, no, we need like, let's go, let's go. And Del Rey, Trisha's like, you know, more more at that speed also. So just, absolutely. But there was this period of like, yeah, I would I even remember at a party or two like downplaying how much I had written because you, you would say the number like thirty three to someone, and it almost sounds like, well, what do, what does each one of those matter or something. But two, then said someone, ooh, what are they about? You know, 33, they're like, what the fuck? I don't even know what you're talking about, dude. And at some point, I realized a lot of my heroes, Hitchcock, King, um, I mean, just a lot, tons of them, um, were prolifics also. And I realized, like, it's, hey, man, it's OK. Like, not only is it even OK, like, like, embrace this. It's OK to love all of them and to give your all to all of them and all these things. Mm. So. There was a, almost like a shame of it for a while, and just recently, I've totally kind of to embraced it again, and that's why I wrote about it in Mallory.
0: That's pretty amazing. I actually have a selfish question because I've heard you talk about something where you said once a book is complete, uh, it's you know it's, it's awesome. It's something to be happy about. Now, does that mean when you write the first draft or does that mean through the whole process you wrote it and then it's in the hands of the editor or publisher? Oh, weird.
1: the first draft yeah doesn't matter doesn't matter if it's good or bad doesn't matter and it just doesn't matter it's like you did it you got 300 pages that you can always fix at any pace you want to fix them at and even if you fixed it wrong like you could go back and fix that like but to get to that first fucking spot to have the stack like it's a story like the ending sucks the uh, the lead character's name changes halfway through um uh, it is, wait oh shit I forgot he has a sister right all that shit, like, like don't, don't, none of that shit matters, man. You'll clean all that up later. So to me, it's like, yeah, with the, with the end of each one of them. And then sometimes I worry, but I know this is foolish, but... Okay, let's say Carpenter's Farm, the book that I just did, the I did, like, a live serialization of. Let's say that, that Del Rey was like, we want to put this out in, you know, hardcovers. Like, I would have, like, a bizarre moment of a conflict, right? Because I love the spirit of that thing. But all I did was write it, check it, post it. Like, can it be rewritten and be a lot better? Fuck yeah. Normally a book goes through like 10 rewrites or something. Hmm. Would I take the time to do that with that one? Or do you let it be the spiritual thing it was? I say, let's just let it be what it was. And that's a perfect example of what we're talking about right now, because can it be better? Yeah. But it's a snapshot of a, a moment in time. It's a snapshot of your spirit, a moment in time. I'm always for, uh, spirit over vocabulary, mood over style. I'm, uh, uh, the rhythm over, you know, uh, references. Like, I'm, I'm always like almost like Carpenter's Farm feels now like a live album to me. Mm. Yeah, we can go in and double-track the lead voice, like, you know, The Dead and Bowie. The Grateful Dead. <laughs> the Dead and Bowie, like, would do that kind of stuff. And that it's awesome. Or we can just kind of be like, this is our live fucking album, and Carpenter's Farm, Carpenter's Farm is my live album. Just let it be that.
0: That Yeah, I, I I love that. I love the spirit over all those things, too, man, Um, because that's kind of what makes all the authors different from each other. You know, it makes yeah. the story different.
1: And then also, if you, like Read certain authors where it's like just like oh shit like like Nabokov it's Gerald where the writing is just so smooth it's almost it almost feels like you're watching them swim or something like and and it's like and I don't know how to explain it like in their case even in their cases like The Beautiful and damn, even that book I'm like yeah it's alright the writing is like off the fucking charts good but the book's alright. And, and then I, w- I could equate that to in music to, like, you know, a guy that like can shred or something, but so what? Mm. But then the guy that shreds, or maybe even, like, Neil Young, his solos are choppy and small, but there's just so much there. And you can feel that shit. Mm.
0: Yeah, you can feel – I love Neil Young. You and I have talked about this before. Ozzy in Neil Young two guys that you and I love. You can feel everything about them in their live stuff. I, I like their studio stuff more, but – I mean, there is something different about the live recordings. Um, I just kind of piggyback off of something we were talking about uh, about the first book. I remember mine it was 2013, is when I met my wife. She was the one that got me back into, hey, I do love reading, cause school kind of beat into me that maybe I'm not smart enough or I don't get it. But then I met my wife. She's like, you like this, and I'm like, I do like reading, which got me into writing. And I remember finishing that, wrote it in two or three months, 80-something thousand. I'm like, this is is a big deal. It
1: feels cool. Oh, yeah, man. That's life-changing shit because if you can do it once, you can do it again. And even if you only did it once, like what a thing to have the rest of your life that you wrote this 87,000-word book.
0: (laughs) Now, I got something – normally I would save a question like this for off the air, but it might apply to someone that's listening, so I'm just going to ask it while we're recording. Um, for me, I've written I, – I told this to Bren recently. I feel nuts for saying this, but I've written like 10 books now, but they're all only the first draft because I never return to them. And Brennan goes, you – so, so basically you wrote a few hundred thousand words – and you never literally ever went back to them. I'm like, no, I got more stories to write. Like what
1: Same, same. There's there's books in that crate, dude, that yeah. I I have not looked at since I wrote it. Like, uh let me I'm trying to think of one to match what you're saying. Oh, great one. There's one called Bring Me the Map, okay? Hmm. That is a hundred and sixty thousand words. It's a beast. And it's in this crate. There's two crates over here, actually. Um and I wrote it right after Bird Box, so that should be significant to me, you know, in my life. What did I do right after, you know? And I dude, I haven't read it since the day I finished writing that rough draft. I I haven't opened that book. It could be like the most problematic, like, oh fuck, that like can of worms in the world, or it could be like, I have like a total gem in there and I have no idea. <laughs>
0: So that's what I wanted to ask you because I really don't know the definition of prolific and I think you're someone that would know it is and again this is a selfish question but I've written 10 novels, uh, three four novellas, over 30 short stories, May, pretty much nothing's published, most of them are first drafts in a period of 7 years. Oh. Is is that considered yes are you kidding me? Yes. Because I, I got, like, nothing published, so I'm like, what the
1: fuck am I doing wrong? It's interesting. No, no, no. Dude, I told you, I, when, by the time Bird Box came out, I had written, I think, 14 novels. And Bird Box is my first one to come out. So, and I know that Kerouac had something like 10, 12. I think Stephen King had, like, a bunch. Of, maybe the Bachman books were before carrying, were they? He had. I know he had four or five, because I, I... Yeah. <laughs> so then, okay. So, I mean, to me, it's like, okay, when Bird Box came out, I went and gave like um um I introduced myself and the book to like a um a room full of uh, media at um the Museum of Modern Art in New York. Mm-hmm. Imagine this was freaking horrifying, right? I've never had a book out before. I'm supposed to get up with this giant poster of Bird Box, the book cover behind me, in front of oh, USA cool. people, New York Times, all this stuff. It was I didn't even know what was going on. I told right. you for all those years and all this. But the point was, there were three authors that day. There were me, um, a woman, Laleen Paul, and then this other guy, Smith Henderson. And Smith took ten years to write his novel. Okay? And I remember thinking, right before we both went on, that I had, in that same ten years, I had written like fourteen, well, I, mine wasn't ten years. I had written like, whatever it was. By 2014, I had written, um, uh, it's about two years, so I had, I must have been like, uh, yeah, like 20 novels or something by 2014. So it was this unbelievable realization to me that I had written, you know, for 10 years and he was just, and we met up at the same exact spot, both being introduced to the same group of people as debut authors. And that was really a profound thing to me that I realized like it was in the flesh, like it does that. um There's no one way to do it. Mm just in the flesh like I mean I'm literally seeing a guy who fucking spent 10 years on one novel I'm a lunatic firing sometimes it feels at random most of the time not and here we are in the same exact moment in time both of us with our first book being published so to me yes you're just a natural prolific Um I count you know a demo of a song yeah I wrote that song A uh, Rough Draft yeah of course I wrote that book is it the best book it could be no might that might that Rough Draft suck it might <laughs>
0: that's true and i just uh, i appreciate you answering that because it always bugged me that i got and and i'm never like oh man fuck my friend i'm always happy for my friends in my head though i'm like i keep getting rejects rejections and it motivates me to write more and more but I'm just like when it, I'm chomping at the bit, man. I'm like, I gotta. I, the next one's gotta be it. The, the one I'm working on is gotta be it. So.
1: One thing I've discovered in music and writing mm. is that anytime I start to feel like, like, oh, I can't fucking play this chord, or I can't, like, all my songs sound the same, or, or writing. Anytime I get to that moment of like, this is so frustrating, I'm like, you're on the cusp of like a quantum leap. You're on the cusp of being able to do something you haven't done on the guitar before, or you're about to write like the best thing you've ever in so far. And like the really because like these moments they're not easy. When maybe when you're between age thirteen and nineteen, they're easy because you're developing so fast and so much and vast. But when you get to a certain age, like how much are you really quote unquote developing, right? So by putting in all the work that you're doing and that I'm doing, and that we're all like a lot of us are doing, um, you also have to get better. But it's not as apparent as when you just start playing or start writing when you get exponentially better every time so anytime i run into that moment you're talking about that sort of frustrated like fuck that's like you're right on the cusp of a of a breakthrough
0: i hit that today because i like again going back to older part of the conversation for the story i'm working on and um I, i told brennan like i'm stuck i don't like i'm bleeding to the page but like i can't I keep writing every day, but my goal is 2,000 words, but I'm like I'm only doing 1,000 or whatever. and I feel like I'm beating myself up. So I think this is relatable to other writers because we tend to set goals for ourselves, and if we don't hit them, we're just kicking our own ass. Do you do that to yourself?
1: Yeah, but then like I've tried different things too. Um, I tried – I'm Mary Carol. I wrote 5,300 a day. That was – Nuts. 5,300
0: a day for how many days? 15 days. How how many you cut out? How many?
1: 15. I'm um, very careful. It was written in just over two weeks. But then oh, the. Oh, uh, my lord. <laughs> monstrous. But, but, but the rough draft. Ooh, God, it was just like. Ugh, couldn't stop. I absolutely loved it. Then I tried recently because I've heard of numerous authors that write 500, 300, like Hemingway, um, 500, 300 a day. So I was like, I'm going to only write 500 words a day. And that was so freaking grueling, man. It was grueling. It would take me like, I'm like, oh, my God, I'm done already. And I'm, I'm like, but that's the point of this one. later, if the writing's better, I, of course, I haven't read it since. But like, but it's like, like, we'll see later if it's better. And then I wrote a giant, a beast of one, 300,000 that I did 1000 a day because I was aware Whoa. I was aware that this was a marathon and that there was no way that I was going to um, reach the end if I came out gunning, like swinging four or five a day. No fucking way. So what I'm doing now has been like about two a day. But yes, to answer your question, we all beat ourselves up. Like, oh, I said I was going to do a 1,000. I only did 500. I think any any writing is, is you know, that's good. <laughs> Whether it's 300, 500, 5,000, one page, 10, it doesn't matter. It's good.
2: I think everybody's journey is different too. And I keep coming back to, you know, the example you laid out where, uh, you know, maybe you had 14 books and you were putting out your de- debut published novel versus somebody who spent 10 years on it. And to me, not to take away anything from that person, because that's how they write. That's, you know, that's their process. Um, But it, you know, to relate it back to music, it's if you're writing uh, different books. That's how you're working on your craft. You're working by just continuing to put words down on the page, continuing to learn how to tell a story. That's like, you know, working on your scales, working on your techniques, and working on, uh, different chords and voicings and all that stuff versus getting really fucking good at one song. Um, and at the end of the day, if you work on all the technical aspects, you're going to be a better writer. Again, not, I know some people are gonna, the way they work is they're gonna write their first draft and they're, then they're gonna go back and they're gonna learn stuff based on, um, reworking their own writing. And, you know, of course, that's not to say you won't learn anything learning one song, but you'll learn, to, to my opinion is you'll learn more. Working on the foundational stuff.
1: Well, there's yes, I I know what you mean, and and that's why like I I almost don't even care. It, it's hard to explain. I guess what I, what I'm trying to say is that what I love is the body of work in the end. What I love is the is the canon. Ooh. I love like I love the like the variation of all these things, and it's also less pressure on you as a prolific if you've written numerous books because there's less you, you feel less like. A single book has to express, it has to express you completely. If I was only writing one book, I would be like, oh shit, well, he better eat Raisin Bran because I like that better than Rice Krispies. Um, you know. <laughs> <laughs> you write like, if you've written like 30 novels, you could start r- writing books where nobody in the character relates to you at all. And that's cool. Like, you don't feel this need, like, I need to express myself. Look, uh, I need to, you, this is what I mean to say. You don't feel like this book has to represent me in full. Whereas, if you only wrote one, you might feel that way. But, Smith Anderson, I saw a really funny tweet like the day, or or like maybe it was a, six months after that meeting with that guy, or when when we did that thing together, where he tweeted, does anybody have an idea for a second book? <laughs> 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 and I was like, oh god, this guy's about to start 10 more years, you know? But I mean... Sounds L- exhausting. Langan took 10 years for the fisherman, he told me. So it's like, and that's a masterpiece, man.
0: So, so Laurel Laurel took 10 for Whispers in the Dark. Really? Yeah, well, it wasn't a consecutive 10 years, but oh, she, well, or she yeah. I think she said 9. Whatever the case, well, you know what? My favorite trilogy cuz I fucking hate the first one, uh, the Hannibal Lecter series. Uh, Thomas Harris, man. He's got He's got uh Black Sunday from the late 70s, the yeah. Hannibal Lecter series. I don't like Hannibal Rising, uh, but that's why I say the trilogy. But um, he's got one more out that just came out this year. So what's that like? Si- that's uh, six books. Oh, is, what's the first one? Black Sunday. That's a... Is it awesome? I actually haven't read that yet because that's around the time that I started getting into the indie horror scene. And I just got lost in those books.
1: I read um, Red Dragon recently and it was like, holy shit, it's good.
0: If I were to say I have one favorite horror book, that's
1: it. I like that more than Silence of the Lambs. blew my lid, man. And Silence of the Lambs blew my lid, too. But um, Red Dragon was... Oof.
0: Dollar Hyde is the creepiest character I've read to date.
1: So good, man. And you know, that dude, what an interesting dude. Because he didn't do an interview like, like we're doing right now. Right. He, I think the last one he did was for red dragon like meaning he didn't do an interview during for the book of silence lambs coming out or when the movie was one of the greatest movies of all time he didn't do an interview and then he just did one recently you can't find practically nothing and his
0: character is going to be more famous than probably most of us are ever even going
1: to come close to yeah yeah it's crazy it's like I want to be Black Sunday though. What's that? So that's Hannibal also.
0: No, Black Sunday was about. It was okay. So there was a terrorist attack in in the Olympics for. Oh,
1: oh yeah, 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 yeah. So
0: this this one is about a terrorist attack during a Super Bowl game. Um, yeah, Hannibal Lecter I don't think was supposed to be a main character. It just caught on.
1: Yeah. But, yeah, but um. in in uh. In, in fact. In, in a weird way, um, Silence of the Lambs almost in a strange way can feel like um, he wrote Red Dragon again. Because, yeah. Yeah, it's still like, it's the same thing. They go to Hannibal for advice, and, and like there's the killer on the loose, and blah, blah, blah. And I remember when I was reading I was like, wow, this is like not a first draft. It's almost like how Evil Dead 1 and 2, you could argue, are the same story, but totally done differently. Holy shit, I've never thought of it like that. Uh, it's not technically like a rewriting, it's, but it's also. I don't know if I'm going to call it a sequel. Yeah, it's like a different version of it.
2: Josh, um, what can you tell us about the reissues of uh, Goblin and This the Day of the Pig that you have coming up?
1: Um, okay, so first, A House at the Bottom of the Lake comes out later this year. And then Goblin next year, Pig the following year. And um, and a book of, um, it's like a book collection of novellas that um that was all in a four book deal with del rey so it's reissues and a collection um dude it's super thrilling um first of all this is horror like i remember when they approached me about doing a novella it was god it's it's that gut thing again man right because i didn't know them that well then and bird box was with a big house and the film rights were sold all this stuff and Michael's, Michael's telling me, like, hey, we can put this out and it'll be great and we'll get a great cover. And I'm like, yeah, let's do it. And my, my, at first, my team, like their instinct was like, dude, you just sold like a book to Harvard Collins. And now you're just going to like like a website from the UK is going <laughs> and, to. And I was like, yeah, I think this I think this guy's cool. <laughs> and they're like, OK. And it's been absolutely incredible, dude. Like that book. When I go to like horror conventions, I feel like I end up talking about that one as much with people as, as the other ones. It doesn't even seem like it was a smaller release at all, but, um, Del Rey is going full wide with it. And it's not a hardcover, but Goblin is. And it's, um, one thing that I do love that Del Rey did is that they helped the font out a little bit. So now it clears 200 pages. Finally. <laughs>
2: Yes, I uh, I selfishly forgot about the reissue of House at the Bottom of a Lake because I already have it on my shelf. I'm just waiting for the other ones. Um, uh, and I have to say, out of everything I've read by you, um, House is my favorite. Um, wow. It's it's such a magical little book. There's this sense of – I already used the word magic, but I'm going to use it again – of magic and innocence about it. Um, I, I love that. I loved the experience. I, I loved – I I still remember – Versus finishing the book and saying that was really cool. I remember turning all the pages, um, and it was. I, I I hope that a lot of people grab that when they have the opportunity to get it again next year.
1: That's cool. That's an awesome way to put that, by the way, too. Um, I was in Allison, my lady is my, my lady. And all of a sudden, I'm like a knight or something. <laughs> my lady Allison is from the north country. She's from um the Michigan, Michigan's Upper Peninsula. And she lives, or their family has a place on a thing called uh, Twin Lakes. But <clears> there's <throat> kind of really three. And, and we were canoeing, her and I. And we're going, and blah, blah, And we got to, like, a tunnel. I mean, not really a tunnel. Like went under a bridge, you know, kind of thing. But it was stone on the sides and graffitied like crazy. And it, the, the last lake that it leads out to just seemed, like, noticeably darker than the rest of them. And I said to her, I'm like, you know, it'd be the scariest fucking thing right now, you know? It wouldn't be like a shark jumping out. It wouldn't be like seeing like a dead body. It would be like if we went, if we pass over the roof, the the tip top roof of a house, and we understood that beneath us was an entire structure with like who could live in there. And then that was it. Like when I got back, like when we got back from canoeing, I was like, yeah, I gotta write that one, like right now.
2: And it's so cool because I would be like, if I had that idea occur to me, I think I would be tempted to go. Full town but that's too easy to explain you know abandoned town gets flooded or whatever um, but just a singular house um, re- really kind of captured a lot
1: in there All right. thank you man that one is very special to me and so is this is horror for what happened with it and then now now it's going wide which is so exciting because it's like going to be on the same shelf you know yeah, as um, you know Carol which, which by the way I don't know why I feel like telling you guys this but Carol is I think my favorite one of the ones I've done so I, I, I end up referencing Mary Carol a lot for that reason. But.
0: As far as this is horror goes, uh, and he did announce this on the uh, the third part to your latest episode, that he's going to have Chuck Palahniuk on. I think it fucked up his surname. He's going to have Chuck Palahniuk on um, soon. And that's huge, man. That's so cool. Yeah. Michael deserves it. He's like him and Brian Keen are the two top dogs of the horror podcast scene.
1: Yeah, but I mean, yes. And then I feel like you guys are like on your way to the same exact thing. It's like, it's just, I mean, obviously you can tell I'm totally at ease with you, right? You know what I mean? Yeah. No, that means a lot coming from you. Yeah. Thank you. You know what I mean? And then like, it's like Michael felt the same way at first, Mike and Bob, where it would just, it just kind of felt like, wow, these two, okay, yeah, let's just roll. You you felt you could talk to them all night. And, you know, it's also like that same feeling you get at like conventions Mm-hmm. Where, I don't know about you guys, because actually I haven't even asked, what cities are you guys in?
2: I'm in, uh, so I'm closest to probably Providence, Rhode Island. Oh, really? Uh, yep. cool. So I, I'm from, um, that area, a town called
0: Bridgewater, which is literally between Boston and Providence. But I live now in South Jersey. Uh, I live about 45 minutes west of Philly. Um, two hours from Williamsburg or wherever, yeah, Williamsburg, Virginia, right? That's where the scares of care is is, mm-hmm. and about thirty about thirty minutes from Atlantic City. So three cities you might go to.
1: Yeah, I went to scares of care, and uh, you know, and um, I I don't know if I've been to Atlantic City, but anyway, the point of that was the convention is that I don't know about you guys, but it's not like I'm surrounded by like horror fans. You know what I mean? I like, go out to like a normal restaurant, and I'm you know what I mean, like whatever. And there's bookstores, and and the guy that works there likes horror, but. Not surrounded. So talking to you two, there's a similar sense of like, oh, I could bring up the fisherman, And you guys know exactly what I'm talking about. I could bring up Cabino Iglesias, uh, Lansdale, anyone. And you guys know exactly what I'm talking about. And that's just – it's just nice. Yeah, true. I'm almost
2: starting to take it for granted. I mean I have to get somebody on a screen or on my phone to do it, but still.
1: Right. I know.
0: (laughs) So basically Josh is saying he feels comfortable to come back,
1: Brennan. Yes,
0: 100%. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> that's fucking awesome. So we know that you're um, – got to go in a few minutes, so we want to actually ask one last question, if that's okay, which would be what are you reading right now? Or are there any books that you want to suggest? Make a shout-out to anyone.
1: Yeah, I'm reading Coyote Songs, actually. Speaking of Gabino. Yeah. and I am 67 pages from the end, and I absolutely love it. But I, like I told him – because I told you I was with him earlier tonight. Yep. I told him uh, – I don't want to say just like, oh, I love it. Like, they're, this, this is powerful, man. <laughs> this is rich. Um, the whole the only, crossing the border shit is super heavy. Mm-hmm. The guy that goes to that stew master. Remember the stew master? I game? haven't read that book yet. I'm actually going to be reading it soon. That was crazy. I'm. Oh, I also got. I want to read this as soon as possible. Brianna Morgan's Unboxed.
2: Oh, yes. yes I keep hearing great things about mm-hmm. that.
1: I'm a huge fan of the, um, the idea, at least, of um, horror theater. And it's like a huge fantasy of mine. I've been saying it for six years. If it's such a fantasy of mine, I should just fucking do it. But it's like, I, it's a dream to open like a horror theater where Allison would star in each of the segments. And each segment would only be like 10 minutes long, like Wrangling, all in the French days before effects. So it'd be all practical effects. Like, you know, the screen, you know, someone swings a knife, the screen, go, the the theater goes black when it turns on again. There's a head rolling across the stage, you know, stuff like that. And you so. She wrote that that I'm going to read. And then can oh, you j- just because she's a
0: newer author, um, do you mind just telling us a synopsis? I don't think you just did that and, and telling us a little bit about the author that, you know, if but you I, have,
1: could, you, I literally have the back right here. You want me to read it? Yeah. Yeah. Greg Zipper is a paranormal vlogger whose livelihood relies on his on- online popularity. When a fight between him and his girlfriend goes viral, for all the wrong reasons, Greg purchases a dark web mystery box in hopes of restoring his audience's faith in him and hitting one million subscribers. But when Greg opens the box, he gets much more than he bargained for, including a boxer who's determined to stop him from taking his loved ones for granted. Now Greg must do all he can to stop the boxer. It's capital B. Or else he'll lose his livelihood along with the woman he loves. And it's all... um. Yeah, look, it's all—it's you know—it's a freaking play, man, which is to me super thrilling, and I would I would love to write a whole novel in this format. That's very cool.
0: Yeah, for audio listeners, it's just the format is literally as a screenplay would be, or uh, sorry, that's not the correct term, yeah. is it?
2: Playbill, I think. Yeah, playbill. Yeah. yeah, possibly.
1: Okay. Playboy, no playbill. <laughs> playbill is Playboy's lesser-known cousin. <laughs> yep.
2: <laughs> yeah, and uh and, and the author there, Brie Morgan, um, I believe she still has a Kickstarter up right now for a short story collection that is I think it's fully funded and they're going for stretch goals, but um she is very, very nice. Um I've interacted She's super with super
1: sweet. Yep. Yeah,
2: yeah. So I, I hope she'll see those stretch goals get funded.
1: You know, there's this amazing theater in that town I told you, Berkeley, Michigan, where I was drinking for years. There's an amazing old theater that was turned into like built next to it was a Rite Aid and now the theater is literally just like this storage for Rite Aid, you know? And it's like, man, that's like, cool. It's even got the awesome marquee and like, you know, it's got the all oh, like how amazing it, you know? I, I'm sure all the seats and everything are gone now. It's just like literally boxes of toilet paper and shit. But I would, it's like a fantasy to like buy that place, put up just even like a dinky stage. Doesn't even, dude, the theater space itself doesn't even matter. It could be dark, dingy. But it doesn't have to be it's a horror theater. Let's just get like a little platform, a hundred seats, let's turn like you know, right? Like a scary thing. Allison performs it, another friend performs it. Doesn't that sound sweet? Yeah, it does it sound be dark
2: sweet. and dingy if it's a horror theater. Uh,
0: Stephen King wrote one called The Ghost Brothers of Darkling County. I watched that with my wife when they came to Boston. John Mellencamp did the music for it. It was so it was it was so cool. Um, I don't know if you guys saw that, but you're just making me think of that. It wasn't dark and dingy, but the play itself was kind of gritty, and I, I I love it. I love the concept of what you guys are talking about.
2: Um, yeah, Josh, Josh I uh, would throw out at you. Um, Mark Steensland wrote a play called The Deception of Catherine Vasque. If you uh, you should you should check it out. I think you dig it. It um, it's about um, let's just say a séance gone wrong. Um, and he does a really fabulous job of uh, ratcheting up the tension in that in the second uh, in the second act.
1: All right, I just wrote it down. I am definitely gonna check this out. All yeah, right,
2: ma- yeah.
0: Is that uh got anything else, or do you want to call it a wrap, man?
1: I guess that's it. Um, I did the interview with Gabino before this, which was really good and really fun, and then this was phenomenal. Um, I feel like I talked your guys' faces off a little, but that's okay. I, oh, I, I loved it. Yep. Yeah. All right, <laughs> so. And then now I'm going to go probably read the rest of his book and hang out with Allison. Where can people follow you? Um, it's, uh, it's just my, it's just my name every, and, and all the platforms. So just Josh Mallerman, M-A-L-E-R-M-A-N on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter. And the website is more interesting now than it used to be because now there's a full novel serialized. It, it's all up there as one for free. And I love that there's no comments, no reviews, no likes, no, um, views at all. Um, it's just literally a book that's on the website. That's all it is for free. It's brilliant. brilliant. Thank you. As always, Brennan, thank
0: you for joining Josh. Thank you for being on the show for what will hopefully be many times throughout the years to come Gosh. listeners. Thank you for listening again. We hope you uh, picked up a few things. Thank you, Josh.
1: Yeah. I just wanted to say on the way out, you guys are both really awesome at what you do. You got like awesome voices for it and great questions for it. And, 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 and any time that I felt like ah, and then you guys were like right there with some flow <laughs> or pickup, so yeah I think you guys were that was really amazing thanks for thanks for having me
0: it, it, it has it's, to be two of us <laughs> yeah no it means a lot because this is uh, like I said earlier before we recorded this is a 36 episode we recorded we're new it's the first season thank you so much man right on we are
1: in your mind we are all around you are now leading. Um, I need to go to the bathroom.
0: Yeah. Okay. Let me write the time down. Okay. You mind if I go pee too,
1: there, Josh? Let me write the time down. I like to keep track of these things. What time do you pee normally, Josh? No. Oh, no. No.
0: <laughs>
2: 10, <laughs> no. 10:25. I edit.
0: <laughs> <Got> no. <laughs> I edit the episode, so I'm time stamping it.
1: I will send you the the next time I go too. Once we're, I'll like you're, You'll get a. Uh, I'll send you an asterisk next next time I go. Okay, so like it'll be like 1 a.m. <laughs> All right, hold
0: on. Josh, please, at one (laughs) o'clock.